0: another episode of the big rhetorical podcast i'm your host charles woods this week's episode is another entry in our emerging scholar series and features a discussion with dr jonathan osborne
1: when we say african-american rhetorics or black rhetorics there's a a typical idea that comes to mind a, a typical way that we construct that idea of, of African-American rhetorics is usually seen as something sort of resisting oppression, resisting the sort of manipulation of race or identity or something like that to position someone as less than. When you have someone like black conservatives who don't see themselves as victims of uh, racial identity, race usually isn't even the main way that they identify themselves. So when, when they're talking, do they count? Uh, does their rhetoric count? For me, I think is actually really important to count their rhetorics because it, it not only you know recognizes their humanity, but it also expands the field itself.
0: A PhD student at Northeastern University, an incoming assistant professor at Louisiana State.
1: Even in my CV, there's sort of a dissonance between what I'm studying and sort of the work that I do within university settings. So I've done a lot of work addressing issues of oppression. There's a a training that I developed at Northeastern University that works to help staff members address issues of oppression on campus. So there's sort of a way of thinking about me as scholar versus me as person in society. It's sort of one of the things that I, I struggle with a little bit because there's always Always, at least for me, there's always a fear of my ethos becoming too connected to the research. And so that would potentially push people away from seeing me as valuable or my work as valuable because conservatism isn't a topic or a, a theme that, at least in my experience, happens a lot at colleges or universities. And So that that becomes sort of an issue, at least in my mind.
0: You'll hear more from Dr. Osborne in a bit. The ramifications of the COVID-19 global pandemic on higher education continue to unfold every day. The Big Rhetorical Podcast has devoted a bit of time to the pandemic and will continue to do so as long as needed. Last week, Julio Vincent Gambudo published a piece on Medium titled Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting. Gambudo is a writer and director in New York City and Los Angeles. In his article, Gambudo refers to the pandemic as the Great Pause and urges us to take hold of this. Quote, inexplicably incredible end quote, moment he warns readers not to be gaslit by consumerism as the world begins a rollout of openings and eased restrictions things are different now quote, from one citizen to another i beg of you take a deep breath ignore the deafening noise and think deeply about what you want to put back into your life This is our chance to define a new version of normal, a rare and truly sacred, yes, sacred opportunity to get rid of the bullshit and to only bring back what works for us, what makes our lives richer, what makes our kids happier, what makes us truly proud. Gambuto's piece is thought-provoking, but more importantly, accurate. Things are Different Now, we need to embrace this fact going forward in our work, in our relationships, in all aspects of our lives. Easier said than done, surely. Originally from Louisiana, Jonathan Osborne moved to Maine after finishing his master's degree at Tulane University to work in multicultural affairs at the University of New England. Currently, he is a PhD candidate, actually a newly minted doctor, in the English department at Northeastern University and a diversity fellow in the writing department at Ithaca College. His dissertation, titled Difference Within Difference A Study of Modern Black Conservative Rhetoric, argues that scholars of African American rhetorics neglect conservative political perspectives, latent within the larger, african-american rhetorical tradition through his research he contends that black conservative rhetoric contains several rhetorical techniques generally reserved for mainstream means of persuasion thus questioning the status of black conservatives residing on the fringes of social consciousness and black communities dr osborne will join the faculty at louisiana state university in the fall I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Osborne.
1: So, I I definitely had instant ramen growing. You know, restaurant-quality ramen didn't happen until Boston, and that was that was life-changing.
0: We're going to get to Boston. All right, yeah. we're going to get to Boston in <laughs> that major move, but you didn't grow up there. You grew up in Louisiana,
1: right? What part of
0: Louisiana yes. did you grow
1: up in? So I grew up in northwest Louisiana, a city called Shreveport. Typically, when people imagine Louisiana, they think of New Orleans, they think of the Bayou, they think of Mardi Gras those images don't really fit Shreveport it's gets more of its flavor uh, at least in my mind from Texas it's a little slower moving uh, but I, I had a great great time uh, growing up there so that's uh, that's really where I'm from
0: what you uh, what kind of what kind of things did you do growing up in Shreveport
1: I love sports uh, played uh, basketball growing up uh, actually played lacrosse in high school which was a lot of fun I watched it a lot on TV, and I was like, you know, I, I think I can do that. So I, I did that for for a year in high school. I was also into all kinds of activities, you know, growing up in the church, uh, was part of choirs and, and other things at, at my church, also in, in a lot of clubs in high school. So I was on the Science Olympiad team in high school. Yeah, I did so many things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, only child, you have brothers and sisters.
1: I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. There's a lot of us growing up, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. What did your mom do? She was a high school uh, English and Spanish teacher. So that's kind of, at least in my mind, where I, I get a lot of this sort of fascination with the English language from. She was she was a great uh, high school teacher. My father worked in the auto industry. He uh, worked at General Motors. Uh, they had a plant in Shreveport, so he worked there while I was growing up.
0: Sounds like a pretty good childhood. I mean, for the most part.
1: Yeah, I really can't complain. Like it was, it was really comfortable. We had a lot of chances to do so many things. Like we had a lot of opportunities to uh, to explore and, and to grow. So, um, yeah, I can't can't really complain.
0: Now there's a university in Shreveport, right?
1: Uh yeah, there there are a few. So there's LSU has a Shreveport campus. There's a Centenary College. I think another community college there as well.
0: Yeah. Excellent. But you decided to leave Shreveport yes, and head to <laughs> New Orleans for your bachelor's degree, right? And yeah. you went to
1: Tulane. I did. What made
0: I you did. decide to go to Tulane?
1: So I was a little bit picky when I was deciding uh, where I would apply for college. I, I literally only applied to two places. I applied to Tulane University and I applied to Yale University. And I got into Tulane, did not get into Yale. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to Tulane. I mean, it's not, you know, not a bad fallback.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple, really. I mean, yeah. like
1: Yale, <laughs> Tulane. Yes, yes. <laughs> and
0: there you uh, you continued on uh, studying English and you had a creative writing emphasis.
1: Oh, uh, um,
0: what? Actually, can you uh, talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole journey within college was pretty all over the place. So uh, I did. I actually did not go to college with the expectation of focusing on English. Really? I initially wanted to go for pre-med. I was thinking oh. of going the, the medical route. And, you know, I, I enrolled, started courses. I took a chemistry course uh, my first semester of college, got a D. And I was like, well, this is not the place for me. <laughs> So I switched to uh, business, uh, majoring in business, and uh, it was OK. I, I was you know, just sort of going through the motions for, for the most part. But I was also taking an English course, uh, maybe one or two per semester, and building a rapport with a lot of the faculty in the English department. And one of the faculty members approached me and said, you know, you would actually be a really good candidate for our four plus one program where I would get a master's after an additional year uh, of studying. And I was like, that sounds great, but I'm not an English major. So I actually had to take uh, almost a full slate of courses my my uh, junior and senior year in order to complete the the English degree. Uh, and it was a blast. Like, I, I love those courses. I, I definitely had a, had a great experience with the, with the faculty and taking the creative writing courses was really a highlight, you know, they get a lot of visiting scholars. So it's it's great to learn from people who have experiences from uh, not just from all over the country, from but from all over the world. So that was that was a great, you know, sort of influence on how I was approaching my studies while I was at Tulane. And then I did the, the additional year to receive the master's degree.
0: What was your master's degree thesis on? project?
1: It was a little different at Tulane. So we don't, at least at the time, there wasn't sort of a master's thesis. You just sort of complete the required courses. So I didn't, I didn't actually start developing sort of a focus on my research at that point.
0: You graduated with your master's degree in 2009. What did you do after that?
1: So I interestingly went to Houston and worked as a math tutor for a year. So, you know, obviously, you get an English degree, you go teach math. <laughs> makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was part of an initiative to work at public schools to increase the uh, the scores for standardized testing for students. So I worked at a, a high school that was uh, sort of failing within the Houston uh, school district, uh, independent school district. Did that for a year. It was actually a really... Eye-opening experience to work with a lot of students who don't have, you know, the resources that uh, you know I grew up with or people who are more fortunate have. So, but but at the same time, these are students who have uh, just an amazing focus and drive. There's students who I still think back on and to see them as amazing people because you know they're they're dealing with a lot of issues, not just in school but also at home uh, because a lot of times they're taking care of their siblings um, they're dealing with all kinds of issues within the community so it was just it was just a really eye-opening experience um, so i did i worked there for a year uh, as a math tutor um, and then i moved to maine i moved all the way to the up- opposite side of the country <laughs> Uh, yeah. And I worked in uh, multicultural affairs at the University of New England in Maine. That was also an incredible experience. I had never been to Maine. I think the the farthest north I'd ever been was probably you know New York, uh, which you know is pretty far north, but did not prepare me at all for Maine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My wife and I were in Maine last winter, and uh, we kind of fell in love with it. Uh, oh, yeah. We were in a town called York, Maine. Where is what the University of New England? What town is that yeah. in?
1: So uh, there are two campuses. Uh, the campus that I worked at is in Biddeford, Maine, um, and the main there's there's a, a sort of a graduate campus in Portland, Maine. So um, Biddeford is about 20 25 miles south of there. But yeah, oh, it's gorgeous. Uh, and the university, the Biddeford campus, is right on the water. It's amazingly, uh, you can literally walk to the beach from class. Uh, so it's it just a beautiful campus. Uh, really enjoyed my time there. Um, working in multicultural Affairs was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, it's the uh, I mean, main, uh, if not the widest state, is second. It's not, not too far down on the list if it's not first. But it also gets, uh, or at least at the time, it received a, a number of refugees from uh, Somalia. So we actually had a decent-sized Somali population on campus and you know, just a lot of students from all over the country. Like we, we had some students from California, from uh, the, the Midwest, uh, just all over the place. Um, and so we were trying to sort of foster a, a community for students who might miss part of their culture or part of their community. We had a lot of events that were, you know, focused around either food or, or dance or just something that would help them uh, feel more connected to the university. So it was just it was, it was a really wonderful time there.
0: So I moved from Birmingham, Alabama to Bloomington, Illinois,
1: and I feel like
0: <laughs> that's a drastic, drastic move. But, yeah. Jonathan, it is not as drastic as moving <laughs> from Louisiana Louisiana to maine in any way um no. <laughs> I mean, still ra- trying to wrap my head around that that just is in-
1: wow uh, i was not prepared for the snow i i thought i was you know i you know you see it you think it's beautiful but you know digging your car out of three feet of snow not fun at all oh it is not uh, <laughs> number of times i was driving that I-, I drove I-, I drove up to maine and, and kept my car there are a number of times i was driving i was like you know I might not make it out of this because I was just swerving all <laughs> over the place. Thankfully, I, I survived. Didn't never had a crash, so I'm <laughs> very happy about that. Uh, but there's there so many things I was not prepared for.
0: <laughs> That's at the University of New England how, and the Multicultural Affairs Department. How
1: long did you do that job? So I was there for uh, three years, uh, I think uh, 2011 to 2014.
0: And then what happened next?
1: So I was, uh, again, I was enjoying my time there, uh, but I actually had the opportunity to work as an adjunct in the English department while I was at the University of New England. Uh, I was talking to the chair and he said, oh, you know, if you want to teach a course, just let me know. I was like, you know, I, you know, I have this degree. Uh, I want to use it. I love, I miss the classroom so I just I took the opportunity to teach a course. Um, I taught a course on uh, world histories through literature or, or something to that effect. I, I forget the, the actual name of the course. But basically, it was trying to take a sort of a broader approach to a um, survey of literature. So I focused on uh, magical realist texts and trying to see how we can sort of think through that, apply different disciplines to the, to magical realism. Uh, so taking art or, um, other, other disciplines and seeing how we're understanding the field or, or the, the idea of magical realism, you know, what, what does that look like in literature brought more broadly. And when I, when I taught that course, it was just, it was so amazing. Like I, I loved it so much. Um, the students eh, then maybe not so much, <laughs> But it was, it was just such a, a wonderful opportunity, and after teaching it, I was like, you know, I really, really miss this, and I want to go back. So I decided to apply to PhD programs, and I applied to a number of schools uh, and ended up getting into uh, the PhD program at Northeastern University in Boston.
0: I know that Boston's pretty close to Maine, a couple hours, if that, really, <laughs> So did you have to move for this uh, new adventure?
1: Yeah, yeah. I had to uh, to pack up and move down to Maine, uh, move down to Boston. and uh, the first thing I did was get rid of my car. Being having a car in Boston is like asking for you know 10,000 tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you know let me let me get there, let me get rid of my car. Uh, so yeah, so then I, I moved down a little bit to to Boston. Really crazy experience. I had not really like I visited a little bit, but just had not really experienced Boston. And honestly, to that point, it was uh it was perfect for me. Like I I had never been in a city where everything was both accessible but also not not too far away, but at the same time you're in a big city, so it, it felt like a sort of a mini version of, of New York, and I, I love that. So I could I could walk everywhere, like I would walk to campus uh, all the time. It was just it was it was a really great really great move. I was really happy about it.
0: So I know you've done a ton of stuff there while you've been at Northeastern, from mm. training things in the department, working on your dissertation. I know that you've landed a job. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. <laughs> Great. So and so and and you're doing a ton of things there in the department at Northeastern but I I want to pause quickly and cover this other role that you have as the dissertation diversity fellow uh a, 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 I'm sorry you hold a, the Dissertation Diversity Fellowship in the Writing Department at Ithaca College. And this is in uh, conjunction with, you do this also wh- yeah. wh- while working uh, on your dissertation <laughs> New- at Northeastern, how you have time to be on here with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but tell us a little bit, of what what are you doing there at Ithaca College?
1: Sure. So the, the fellowship is basically a, uh, a one-year fellowship. Uh, I'm moved to Ithaca, New York, working at Ithaca College, It's essentially designed to give me an additional year to finish my dissertation. So I'm teaching, uh, I've been teaching one course per semester. Uh, I don't really have any responsibilities within the department. It's it's sort of a, just again, more time for the dissertation, which, you know, everybody wants. Right. Uh, (laughs) But also it's gives me a really good idea of what it means to be a faculty member. So I have my own office. I have a lot of rapport with the faculty members there. Uh, There's a lot of opportunities to do things like go to faculty meetings or speak to people about the uh, expectations of tenure or see what uh, mentorship and working with undergraduate students looks like. Uh, so it's more, is both, you know, more time for the dissertation, but also saying like, this is what it means to be uh, a faculty member. So it's, it's been both, uh, a godsend in terms of more time, but also, uh, a learning experience.
0: Well, that sounds like a really great
1: opportunity.
0: And, uh. So it sounds like it's it's really been great. I'm, 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 yeah, uh, yeah. listeners can't see the big smile on on Jonathan's face. I think it's safe <laughs> I say you've enjoyed your time there for oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. let's jump back into this dissertation project, which sounds fascinating. Uh, admittedly, listeners, I have no idea uh, about <laughs> a lot of this stuff. I was telling Jonathan earlier during our production meeting that I don't I, I, I feel like I may ask the wrong questions, the wrong things. <laughs> Uh, but we're going to jump into it. So the first question I want to ask is, let me read the, the title of your dissertation. Sure. Uh, your dissertation is titled Difference Within Difference, A Study of Modern Black Conservative Rhetoric. How did you come to this project specifically for your dissertation?
1: Early on, maybe my my second year in the program, I'm sitting with my advisor, uh, Ellen Cushman, and we're sort of looking at the field, uh, talking about different scholars, how they're positioning themselves, what they're talking about, the, the scholarship that they're developing. you know I, I think as, as most people are doing when they're coming up with a dissertation topic, you're trying to figure out okay what what are people not talking about? Uh, where are the sort of gaps or the, the lacuna within these these spaces? And you know I'm you know just brainstorming uh, spitting out stuff. Eventually, I'm like, well, what about Black conservatives? Uh, you know, does, has anybody talked about them? Done any research on them? And you know, Ellen turns to me and she's like, I, I don't think so. And so I just, you know, started doing a quick search. Couldn't find anything. I Tried to do a broader search. Still couldn't find anything. And I was like, all right, this is this is literally something nobody's writing about. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, and it, it's it was sort of, it was great because a lot of times I, I think, you know, you'll, you'll talk about an idea and you're really sort of trying to massage it and, and work through, you know, how am I really just dis- different from everybody else? The black conservative rhetoric, I don't really have to worry about that because the field itself doesn't, doesn't really include black conservative rhetoric at all and I, I would say it actively works against it or, or at least the idea of black conservatives they they work against their, their inclusion and so it's, it's actually much easier to develop a, um, my my research and, and my methodology to say okay this is actually how i believe their rhetoric matters and fits within the field so it's just a a really crazy development to to land upon black conservatives as place of study and uh, to think about, you know, what what does their rhetoric look like? How does it function? Uh, and you know, is it is it effective?
0: Beyond the fact that no one in the field was really talking about black conservative rhetoric, what else do you think drew you to that specific subject?
1: I, I've thought about that a little bit. You know, growing up in the South, there's I don't know. Like even even though there's a sort of an expectation that so if we're if we're thinking in terms of politics uh, right. writ large that you know black people are always going to vote Democratic they are uh, and you know thinking back historically that black black people like Martin Luther King or Jackie Robinson used to be a part of the Republican Party and then with things like uh, Barry Goldwater's presidential run. The southern strategy by richard nixon there's a quick shift of just political strategy of moving from the republican party to the democratic party uh and you know you see that proliferate in the south uh regardless of the you know platform necessarily you you see black people consistently voting democratically at the same time socially black people are fairly conservative you know there there's a great expectation of going to church, of sort of hesitancy around accepting queerness or, or um, other sort of differences that people might display from normative social expectations, and so there's, there, there are those things that are sort of happening within me subconsciously. I'm, I'm thinking about if those different perspectives are actually influencing my research interests. So it's, it's not it's not to say that. I know for certain that's where it comes from but those are things that i know have influenced me historically growing up in the south knowing that uh, there's this expectation of voting democratically but also to act um, socially conservative and you know just exploring what that looks like Uh, at the same time you know i remember when colin powell delivered his speech to the united nations that led the world to invade iraq I remember Condoleezza Rice being the Secretary of State, uh, and seeing these, you know, really prominent black figures on the national international stage. Uh, you know, you see Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. You know, these are really important people making really important decisions, but nobody's really looking at their rhetoric. I think that is uh, really a failing. of of our work as scholars to to see these people working making decisions producing policy decisions and and we're not really taking their their means of persuasion seriously so that that's another facet of where this desire came from
0: talk a little bit about the methodology for this project and really if you want to include a discussion of methods in that as well that'd be great that'd be great too
1: the methodology that I'm using for this uh, study is a bit different, and, and I say that only because of what I'll get into. But it, this this is going to be a little bit long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's go for it.
1: All right. So initially, I was trying to figure out, you know, what what is the best way of trying to to understand the the way that Black conservatives are are taking their positions and turning them into uh, rhetoric. Uh, initially, I was trying to use something like performativity or, or something like that to, to figure it out, but it wasn't quite fitting, uh, wasn't quite working. And I, I went back to uh, the rhetorical tradition and saw that there was actually a person who theorized uh, conservative rhetoric, uh, the, the types of rhetoric that should be most persuasive to uh, conservative individuals. Um, so it's uh, Richard Weaver, uh, Richard M. Weaver. He was a political, uh, not a political, he was a, a rhetorician in the uh, 40s, 50s and 60s, uh, contemporary of Kenneth Burke. One of the things that Richard Weaver was really concerned about was this sort of uh, shift. So it's, you know, around the time of the, uh, the postmodern turn um, and we're sort of thinking through you know these things that we used to, to uh, assume were static and and real uh, are not necessarily that way anymore. So uh, for Kenneth Burke, it was the rhetoric of Adolf Hitler, right, that he was able to convince audiences. But he's not a good person. And you know for for you know the history of rhetoric, there is this assumption that. You know, rhetoric, persuasive rhetoric, persuasive uh, language only comes from the good man or the good person speaking well. And here we have Adolf Hitler, not a good person, but he is persuading people. So that was sort of uh, one of the things that Kenneth Burke took up for Richard Weaver. He's seeing changes in terms of the sexual revolution, uh, the civil rights movement. And he's like, oh, well, these are pushing against these conservative norms that we've always grown up with. Like it's causing differences or changes within the South. And Richard Weaver you know, wanted to respond to that. So he developed uh, what he called the uh, axiology of arguments. Uh, so it's uh, basically just a stratification of the types of arguments that should be most convincing to conservative thinking individuals down to the least persuasive. So at the very top of his axiology is arguments from definition. So when so when you're developing an argument you're trying to convince an audience of something, you should use arguments that rely on definition. So the definition, uh, actually I'll, I'll give an example at the end. So um, below that are arguments from similitude. so using, Things like analogy or comparative uh, rhetorical tropes, like metaphor, metonymy, simile, things like that, to convince an, uh, an audience. Below that are arguments of cause and effect. So this happened, therefore, you know, this is the, the outcome that we should be looking for. And then the uh, at the bottom of the axiology are arguments from uh, circumstance. So you look at something, you see something happening, and you're like, "We got to do something." So the example that I like to use is around gun rights. If we're if we're making an argument from definition, well, we know that the Constitution protects the right to bear arms. So we can look at that. It's already set. This is the definition, right? Like it, the definition says, we have the right to bear arms. So it's there below that would be an argument from uh, similar to, so you might say that having a gun is like having something like a, a shield around your house. Like you can you can protect your family because you own a gun. Uh, below that would be arguments from cause and effect. So you might see an argument where uh, this person died and there wasn't. Uh, so I, I think the the argument like uh, the the only the only. I don't know, do you know the the saying from uh, the uh, NRA where um, there's like the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy. yeah that's it. the only yeah. thing that stops a, a right. bad guy with a gun is a good guy. yeah right so that, that's sort of like cause and effect right and then finally you have arguments from circumstance and so you might say there's you know mass shooting uh, and if only you know we had had uh, legislation that got rid of guns then you know this would not have happened right so the the circumstance dictate dictates the the outcome that we should look for. Uh, so the, so that's the the sort of like uh, an example running through the the same idea um, so that's sort of the hierarchy but at the same time there there's a, a sort of another part of it where you have arguments from authority and testimony and this is where the sort of ethos of the rhetoric comes from so you can make appeals to the audience based on you know what they understand of, of your Identity, your your place within society. So that's that works in tandem with the four other parts of the, the hierarchy. So it's a little little long, a little convoluted, but uh, it it it's helpful. Excuse me, in, in in trying to think through, you know, what are the ways that conservatives in general and Black conservatives, uh, excuse me, specifically are trying to appeal to audiences. Um, and so what, what I'm doing is trying to, in, in a way, sort of recover uh, Richard Weaver because he actually doesn't get a lot of sort of notoriety or inclusion within rhetorical studies now, mostly because a lot of what he did or, or what he wrote was very disparaging to black people specifically. Like he did not see black people on the same level as white people. He wrote a lot of apologists. Writing is about the, the South. So he wrote about Robert E. Lee. He wrote about uh, sort of the Southern way of life and things like that. So a lot of his writing and rhetoric was sort of in favor of uh, what we might see as a racist policy or, or approach to to living. So what, I, what I'm trying to do is sort of, you know, recover his uh, his scholarship and saying, well, there, there's actually some more use that we can get out of what he's saying. At the same time, I'm also trying to critique his scholarship and to say, well, actually what you thought was only meant for white people or white scholars can apply to anybody like you know there there are black conservatives who are using his rhetorical techniques to persuade audiences so yeah so that's sort of my methodology broadly speaking
2: Is Paul Cook and I am at Indiana University Kokomo. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor FM. If you have any questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at @thebigret Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Now back to the show.
0: sounds like a really fascinating project for sure, Jonathan. But I wonder, how do you manage yourself as like a scholar doing Mm. this work versus like a person in society?
1: Yeah, great question. It's something that is always on my mind because I understand the stigma that's sort of associated with conservatism. Within an academic setting, most universities are pretty liberal spaces, and you know, conservative speakers or conservative ideas don't tend to get a lot of interest. I know there there have been a lot of stories of conservative speakers like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos or many other conservative speakers coming to campuses, and you know, there're boycotts, there there are threats, or all these things that are. Uh, sort of shouted out or or pushed against conservative individuals. So I I recognize that on the academic level. Uh, Additionally, within uh, a social level, seeing uh, the reaction of black people to black conservatives. Uh, There are a lot of Black people who feel as though Black conservatives are traitors, that they're Uncle Tom, that they're people who are actively working against the best interests of themselves and other Black people. And so, you know, I I see a lot of value in my work academically. At the same time, I'm constantly sort of on the defense of of people associating that with me. And it's not, like, I don't you know, go around and tell people my political affiliation. I just, I want the scholarship to speak for itself. I I really want it to focus on the very basic idea. This is just looking at the available means of persuasion. That's all it is. And those means of persuasion are available to both liberal speakers and conservative speakers like we shouldn't sort of you know petition them off just because we disagree with their um with their position so that that's one thing that's always on my mind but at the same time i like to do a lot of work that is you know working against ideas of oppression working against marginalization you know i lean a lot on my work in multicultural affairs and try to bring that into places like the classroom like working with staff members working with faculty while during my time in northeastern i helped develop a training program for staff members at the university to address issues of oppression so that they could speak to students or to other staff or faculty members and and have vocabulary to use to work again uh, work against issues of oppression so it's, it's sort of a, a I don't know that I I see that as sort of balancing out something like that, that, uh, but I I find it fulfilling. And I think more than anything, me as an academic, I want to constantly do work that I find fulfilling. And so the research is very fulfilling, working to help people on campus is very fulfilling. So as long as I'm doing that, I, I feel very, very good about my contributions to academic and social settings.
0: I agree with you that the majority of institutions in higher education are liberal spaces, Mm -hmm. but I might push back a little bit, if that's okay, and wonder if, is it that conservative voices like Milo Yiannopoulos are being silenced, or is it that the spectacle that Mm -hmm. brings being silenced? What are your thoughts on Mm -hmm. that, Jonathan?
1: Yes, there so there they're definitely uh, sort of provocateurs or individuals who are much more interested in uh you know barring your phrase like owning the libs or or you know trying to produce something that is inflammatory. So there there's definitely that part. But I, I think that there's there's so much more interest or desire to see more liberal speakers on campuses. Uh, than there are to see more conservative speakers and I, it's, it's not to say that this is this is a good or bad thing it's just an observation right that right. That, that there are like when when uh, so I remember when I was going to college like Cornell West came to speak and it was packed like no like it was standing room only you know that's not the case when uh, maybe like a, a Colin Powell or I mean, they're, so they're, they're like, you know, politi- uh, conservative political thinkers that I can think of. But I, I would say, like, even just on a college campus, if you ask someone to sort of name two conservative thinkers, I don't know that they could do it. If you ask them to name liberal speakers, I know that they can do it. Uh, and so that that's I think that's more where I would see the bias of I, I either just knowledge about uh, the speakers or the political ideology generally.
0: The, I think you're the, onto something here, but I wonder how much our involvement or our <laughs> education within the liberal arts, within the humanities has shaped the way that, that we see, that you might see this.
1: Mm-hmm. For yeah, sure. I, yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that's also, so this is one of the things that I like to do in my, my classes. I like to bring in, you know, conservative ideas mm-hmm for students. So, you know, uh, so right now I'm teaching a course called, uh, Persuasion and Propaganda. And I, it's, it's, a really fun course. Uh, we're looking at propaganda in ways that students are just not used to because, you know, propaganda is still happening. It's not right. something that only happens during wartime. And so I'm bringing in all of these different things. So, uh, one of the things I like to use is a YouTube channel called Prager University. Um, uh, you know, some people might be familiar with it as sort of, um, Channel that is developed by Jordan Peterson and, you know, sort of like minded individuals. Jordan Peterson is a professor at the uh, University of Toronto, I believe. Uh, and it, it sort of it just, it all of the videos are in the guise of sort of conservative ideas. One of the videos I like to use talks about feminism 2.0. There's a woman who's speaking and she lists off these are the five things that are hurting women and we should have a new feminism that would be better for women. But it's all just sort of conservative propaganda. So it's talking about, you know, women degrading themselves in the club or wearing, you know, uh, scantily clad clothing or not wanting to be married. It's like it's it's all these things that fit within sort of a, a, a conservative trope. Uh, but it's presented in a way that's supposed to persuade the audience that you know this is good, but you know, I don't think that most people would take that seriously, and I don't think most students would ever seek that out uh, and so by bringing you know something like that into the classroom and 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 letting us analyze it seriously and try to think through well, what are the techniques that the speaker is using to persuade the audience, how is she positioning how is she creating her ethos? Uh, how is she appealing to your um, your predisposed expectations of gender and sexuality? I think that's h- helpful in terms of broadening our understanding of, of you know, these appeals happening in, in different spaces. Uh, but also, and I think this is also a, an important part of it, is you know, how do you develop a, a, an effective argument? against those positions so many times i'll show a video like this and students will say oh well that's just stupid or nobody believes that and you can't say that because you know you can look at the likes you know there you know there could be you know 10 twelve thousand likes or all the comments will say oh you know finally someone says something with sense so you, you'll see people actually agreeing with these positions so you you know they actually need to develop an effective argument against it if it's something you don't agree with so how do you do that and you know, tr- presenting the the video, working through the the different uh, techniques that the Retor is using. You know, th- these are sort of the ideas that I, I think are, are helpful to you know work through the the weird dissonance that's this happening right now on a, a political spectrum that we're we're pushing so much against the other side, trying to break that down and, and actually analyze and understand what's happening.
0: You said that you wanted the the work to stand for itself mm-hmm. certainly there are scholars out there that would say your work can't stand for it by <laughs> itself, itself right what would yeah. you say to those scholars? Uh,
1: I mean I, I wouldn't disagree you know you can't it's sort of you know the same issue in the music industry or you look at R. Kelly or Michael Jackson and you're like you you, you really enjoy the music but you can't separate it from the person not to say that I'm like R. Kelly or Michael Jackson. I trying to do that. <laughs> uh, but just saying, you know, I understand that my myself as a self doesn't isn't totally distinct from the work because I'm producing it. But at the same time, I think the work is doing a lot. And I want that to to mean something. And I don't want it to mean something based on what I'm doing. I want it to mean something based on how it's interacting with the with the work of someone like Eric Darnell Pritchard or someone like uh, Gwendolyn Pugh or someone like uh, Geneva Smitherman. You know, I, I wanted to be able to, and you know, that, that's also part of it, right? That it's not like, I didn't name the books, I named the people. So I, I, I see that it's still connected to me. But when I usually when I say those names, then you start thinking about their work, and that that's what I want to happen. I want people to see you know, my name and think, "Oh, OK, here's someone who's expanding the field, who's bringing nuance to how we understand the persuasive methods of black people politically, uh, specifically in political political spaces and uh, trying to work through what we mean when we say African-American rhetorics.
0: What does it mean or what has it been like doing this work during a time when we have such a polarizing president? Well, it's been challenging. (laughs) That Um, may have been a loaded question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, so, you know, part of it is just recognizing just how little this is talked about broadly. So, yes, my work is focusing on black conservatives but just you know conservative rhetoric in general is it just doesn't get you know and, and the journals that that I frequent is not usually something that I see and so there's just so little critical attention that's brought to what is actually happening you know how how does Trump persuade these audiences and you can't say that it's a fluke you know he's the president like that i I don't see that being productive at all uh there there have to be better ways of assessing his rhetorical ability and understanding what's happening at the same time uh you see more more at least I, i i'm seeing more changes within the sort of conservative Ideological framework itself. So there's, I mean, you know, it's been pretty diverse anyway. So you you have like the Tea Party back during uh, the time of, of Obama. You have libertarians who are, you know, they're not Republican, but they're they're taking a very conservative approach to to parts of their uh, ideology. And now you have sort of the Trump faction, which is uh, in some ways even more right wing. And it, it's bringing a lot of difference to the, the the idea of conservatism. For me, it's really important to think through, you know, how is this affecting the way that Black conservatives are constructing their arguments? Is there are there differences? So when I when I say modern in in my um, in my title, you know, I'm I'm thinking very distinctly of a time before Trump essentially because I, I think this is actually something after uh, sort of a modern construction of, of really anything And so there there's definitely a move there there's some type of shift you know, I can't speak to it too deeply but I, I would say it's a greater emphasis on you know if we go back to the axiology arguments from uh, authority and testimony right like Trump is always saying, believe me, or, you know, this is what everybody's saying. Like, it's always sort of this reliance on ethos or authority, uh, rather than trying to find arguments from definition or other other places within the hierarchy. And so there, there's still, you know, obviously, like some application of uh, conservative uh, rhetorical theory. But Trump just magnifies parts of it in ways that uh, just weren't necessarily visible before. There's, there's also, you know, some parts of it that could be construed as racist, a lot of dog whistling, thinking back to like Charlottesville or or other examples. And so there, there's just a lot of things to work through, um, in this sort of postmodern Trumpian sense of, of conservative rhetoric. So it's, it's both fascinating and disappointing and, and troubling, but also worth studying.
0: You mentioned difference, and that made me think of your book, uh, Landmark Essays on Rhetorics of Difference that came out in two thousand and eighteen with Baca and Cushman. perhaps tell tell us a little bit about that because I know that that some of the work that you did for that project is work connected to your dissertation
1: so about a year after I started working with Ellen, she brought me on as a research assistant to help her do a lot of different things and one of the projects she was working on was this book. And so uh, essentially what we were trying to do, we were trying to find really important pieces on ideas of race, uh, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, ability, disability that have been influential within the field. for for the past, you know, 30 years or so. You know, it was something that actually I needed because coming from my academic background at Tulane University, I was really only, I really only had a background in uh, literature. I didn't have a background in, in rhetoric and composition. And so part of it was just using this as a training ground for myself to better understand the field. Uh, to see, you know, what have people been writing for the past 30 years? What have been the most important pieces? How are they working together? Uh, And what are they producing? What are they leading to as the field continues to grow? And so it was just it was a really wonderful experience. So part of it was uh, just finding the pieces. uh, And uh, I was responsible for a little bit of that. Uh, Most of my responsibility had to do with Getting the rights to the the different pieces. I, I'd also, you know, just never worked on a book before, uh, so that was just that was also an eye opening experience as well. And then, you know, just communicating with people and then also writing part of the introduction. And it was it was wonderful. Like it it was great to get a better understanding of the field, to understand, you know, what what do, what do we mean by difference, and why 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 frame it that way. And I think that was really important. It was, it was important to say that, you know, the field has constructed itself a particular way. Uh, if we look at the rhetorical tradition, it's expansive. It tries to be inclusive, but obviously it can't include everything. Uh, and so what are the things that might be um, either are they missing or would be helpful as an expansion to what we might think of as a rhetorical tradition? Taking sort of a, a pluralistic approach to this idea, bringing in voices that have either been marginalized or, or looked at as less than, and saying no, actually the rhetoric, uh, the rhetoric that these people and these these communities are producing is actually incredibly important. So just the the entire project itself was a great experience, uh, learning more about the field uh, and gaining a greater appreciation for what difference uh, looks like and 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 how it how it works within different spaces and so you know taking that to my own work and saying okay well I see all of these differences but I think there's also further differences within those differences so we have a difference that we call African American rhetorics within that there's a group that is uh, a phrase I like to use is uh, Black conservatives are Tokenized by the right and ostracized by the left they're sort of they're just pushed away from everybody, but they're still there they're they're there, they are producing things they're they're making differences, they're active participants within the political structure of the country. and so you know just taking that time to figure out what does that difference within the larger difference look like? Uh, how are they actually producing rhetoric? and how are they trying to make it work within different spaces has been really important in in my work.
0: I know you're leaving Ithaca soon.
1: Uh, What's next? (laughs) So uh, this is, uh, this has been my sixth year in the program at Northeastern. And as I mentioned, the fellowship was only for one year. So I was on the job market for the past uh, few months and I was fortunate enough to land a tenure track position at Louisiana State University. So I'm actually heading back to Louisiana.
0: <laughs> Excellent. You're going to be in their English department there, I guess, as
1: yes, an assistant uh, professor? That's correct.
0: <laughs> How exciting. What are the uh, things you're most looking forward to, to moving back to Louisiana?
1: Oh, my God. One thing that I actually didn't realize was as important to me until very, very recently was the ability to move closer to family. Uh, I actually don't have a lot of family in the uh, in the north northeast. Uh, so the the potential to move back, uh, like my brother and his family are still in Louisiana. Have my older sister is in Texas. My younger sister is in Nashville. So, you know, they'll they'll be within driving distance. Yeah, I can, I can see them more often, which is wonderful. I miss the food. You know, the food up here is great, but, <laughs> you know, like red beans and rice, getting some uh, some gumbo, getting some you know, really good food. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. I, I will say growing up, I was actually a huge LSU fan. <laughs> so All right. that's also a plus to be able to work at a place that I also love the athletics. Yeah, it's just it's an incredible opportunity. I'm, I'm have, still reeling from it.
0: <laughs> I would be too, Jonathan. That's exceptional. This has been an Outstanding conversation Up until the time that you mentioned That you're an LSU fan <laughs> I'm an Alabama fan, I'm from Alabama So, yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> I don't like you anymore <laughs>
1: you know, I I can't say that it's not mutual <laughs> <laughs> This has been so great, Jonathan Thank you so much Thank you, this has been wonderful Thank you so much
0: you enjoyed my conversation with dr jonathan osborne as we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three which will include the production of our 50th episode i'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast by writing a review you will help the podcast visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available that's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach Thank you for your help with this. Okay, Rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Ret, and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. And you can buy merch from our online store, CafePress.com TBRPodMerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.